0: Hello, thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I host the program with Carrie Figder and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Greg Caruso. Greg is Professor of Philosophy at SUNY Corning, Visiting Fellow at the New College of the Humanities in London, and Honorary Professor of Philosophy at Macquarie University. Greg also co directs the Justice Without Retribution Network at the University of Aberdeen School of Law. Greg's research lies at the intersections of metaphysics, philosophy of mind, cognitive science, ethics, political, and legal philosophy. His new book has just been published by Cambridge University Press. It's titled Rejecting Retributivism Free Will, Punishment, and Criminal Justice. According to an intuitive view, those who commit crimes are justifiably subject to punishment. Depending on the severity of the wrongdoing that constitutes the crime, punishment can be severe. It can be incarceration, confinement, various forms of deprivation, and so on. The common thought is that in committing serious crimes, persons render themselves deserving of punishment by the state. Punishment is simply then a matter of giving offenders just their just deserts. Call this broad view retributivism. What if retributivism's underlying idea of desert is fundamentally confused? What if persons lack the kind of free will that could make them deserving of punishment in the sense that retributivism requires? This is the central question addressed in Greg Caruso's new book. After arguing against the idea that persons can be deserving of punishment in the retributivist sense, Caruso develops an alternative approach to criminal behavior. Now, as usual, there's a lot to talk about. But why don't we begin, as we always do, with our guest. Hi, Greg. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to be talking to you. How are you today?
1: Good. Very good.
0: I'm glad to hear that. Um, So uh, thanks for writing such a wonderful book. Um, You know, we usually start these discussions uh, by uh, asking the author uh, to say a little bit about himself. So, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Greg?
1: Yeah. So I, um, was born and raised on Long Island, um, in a small town named Malvern. Um, I have five older brothers. And so I was the first really to pursue an academic life. Most of my brothers, um, you know, went into, uh, you know, uh, careers in real estate and, uh, building and development and carpentry. Um, I went on to college at William Patterson university where actually we met, um, that's true. <laughs> yeah, we were, we were college mates and, uh, I actually went to study jazz initially. I was a, uh, jazz major. I was an upright bass player. Mm-hmm. Um, and William Patterson had one of the best jazz programs in the country. And that's why I had attended. And I just started taking some philosophy courses, And along the way, I had met you and a few other students who were there at the time. And we started, you know, little reading groups in philosophy. And uh, my interest just got drawn more and more in the direction of doing philosophy. And so eventually I uh, switched over from jazz to to, to philosophy. (laughs) Um, And uh, yeah, you were largely influential in that in terms of our conversations and our reading groups. And you were a little ahead of me, I think, right, a year or two. (laughs)
0: I think that's right, yeah. Yeah,
1: and you sort of uh, paved the path for some of us, so you went on uh, eventually to NYU and then the Graduate Center, um, the CUNY Graduate Center, and I followed you to the CUNY Graduate Center. (laughs) It's true. I was always sort of half a step behind you. Uh, um, (laughs) But yeah, so I I ended up getting my PhD in philosophy from the City University of New York and then uh, went on and, um, you know, have ended up uh, here in SUNY SUNY Corning.
0: That's fabulous. And, um, you know, if I'm remembering correctly, um, your interest in sort of issues about agency and responsibility and free will, um, you know, developed a little bit later that, you know, for most of the time when you were working uh, as a graduate student um, you were more strictly working in philosophy of mind and consciousness. Was that right?
1: Yeah. So um, I was originally you know, doing cognitive science, philosophy of mind, studied under David Rosenthal there at uh, CUNY. Um, and then when it came time to write the dissertation, um, I originally was planning on writing on consciousness. Um, and at some point, uh, I can't remember how it came about. We ended up having a reading group um, on free will. And there was – about three graduate students at the time who were interested in issues. I had never taken a course in free will, actually, during my graduate career. Um, and I started to realize at that time I, I, I that I could apply some of the stuff I was doing in philosophy of mind and agency and uh, link it up with some of the material that I was reading and learning about free will. And my dissertation ended up being on consciousness and free will, which ended up turning into my first book which was titled free will and consciousness. (laughs) Um, And I largely the project there was to kind of um, look at the link between consciousness and free will, but also to provide a account of what I would consider the phenomenology of, of of free will, the phenomenology of agency. And since I think free will um, is an illusion, part of my, my uh, project in that book was to give an account of how that sort of phenomenological, illusion arises by combining aspects that I was doing in philosophy of mind cognitive science, and the basically recent developments in the behavioral cognitive and neuroscientist sciences with um with uh basically a theoretical account of consciousness so once I ended up getting drawn into that area via the philosophy of mind literature, um I just got deeper and deeper into it you know eventually people started to ask me what the uh, practical implications of my view were what would I say about morality and moral responsibility and criminal punishment and interpersonal relationships, and so I ended up going down this rabbit hole, uh, <laughs> where I started to, to to work more and more on the on the practical implications and the policy implications of my my view on free will. Um, and I'm still in that process basically. Um, and so this book is a, an attempt to explain how my view cashes out in the arena of criminal justice and what its implications would be for criminal law and public policy.
0: Fabulous. So that's a really nice segue then into sort of digging into the book. Um, you know, let's start at the beginning, uh, and you know, uh, with with the, some of the points you were just making. So you defend a view um, it, about free will that is sometimes called hard incompatibilism. Um, sometimes it's called also free will skepticism. Uh, sometimes people call it illusionism. I think. Um, tell us a little bit about the view, and can you? Um, I know this is a a, a, a long standing and pretty. A wide-ranging series of debates, um, but can you sort of give us uh, uh, the listeners um, sort of a, a place your view within the more familiar, uh, and maybe to most listeners, the more familiar uh, 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 positions within the debate over free will?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So maybe some definitions would would be helpful at this point. Uh, So free will skepticism, I think, is for me a sort of broader category of views. It's a family of views that either doubt or deny the existence of free will. Um, And historically, the main main, uh, account that defended free will skepticism was a view called hard determinism. And hard determinism was the thesis that determinism is true where determinism is the thesis that facts about the remote past in conjunction with the laws of nature entail there's only one unique future. Um, That determinism is true and incompatible with free will, either because it's incompatible with, say, the ability to do otherwise, which some people think is a necessary condition for free will, or that determinism is incompatible with the agent being the appropriate source of their actions, which is sometimes called source incompatibilism. Hmm. Um, so that view, hard determinism, um, was popular at the sort of uh, at the peak of Newtonian physics. So you get this view uh, being espoused by people like Simone de la Place and Spinoza. Um, actually, Albert Einstein also held this view. Yeah, um, and so that view has sort of faded a little bit because there because of the emergence of quantum mechanics. So quantum mechanics, um, the Final verdict is out in terms of what the final interpretation of quantum mechanics will be, um, but there are indeterminist interpretations of quantum mechanics that suggest that maybe universal determinism isn't true. Um, so different types of views have have emerged out of that, and the view that you mentioned, hard incompatibilism is the view that the sort of free will required for what I call basic desert moral responsibility um, is incompatible both with the truth of determinism and also the kind of indeterminacy in action that would be acquired by the most plausible versions of of what's called libertarianism. Um, So my view is essentially that we lack free will either way. We lack free will whether the universe is fundamentally deterministic or indeterministic. Um, And so it's called hard incompatibilism um, because the idea is that free will is incompatible both with determinism and with indeterminism. Um, So the overarching view I hold, um, which I call free will skepticism, basically maintains that who we are and what we do is ultimately the result of factors beyond our control. And now we can see that maybe that includes either determinism or indeterminism. Hmm. And because of that, we're never morally responsible in a very particular sense. So it's probably best that I define what I mean by free will at the beginning as well. Yeah. Uh, So I define free will as the control and action that's required for a very particular and pervasive notion of, of moral responsibility, which in the literature some people refer to as basic desert moral responsibility. So this is the kind of moral responsibility that would make agents truly deserving of praise or blame or punishment or reward in what's called a purely backward-looking sense. So, understood this way, free will is the kind of power ability an agent would have in um and, and must possess in order to justify certain kinds of um basically deserved attitudes, judgments, and treatments, like certain types of reactive attitudes, uh, certain types of um, responses um, like blame, like retribution. And the idea is that essentially um, on this notion of basic desert, for an agent to be morally responsible for their actions in this sense, it it would, they would have to, they would have to be deserving of blame um, simply for having performed the action, not for what's what you might call consequentialist reasons, right. forward-looking reasons, or contractualist reasons. Um, so basically, the agent deserves um, a certain type of judgment, attitude, or treatment simply for having performed the action. And for me, it's important to kind of link the idea of free will with this kind of more responsibility, because for me, the the historical debate about free will. Um, what's been of central philosophical and practical importance, in my view, is this very central notion of moral responsibility. Um, if I could just add something real quick sure. here. Um, I think this, this definition has a bunch of advantages also. It's a neutral definition. So um, virtually all the various parties in the debate can agree to this without... The definition doesn't exclude any view at the outset. So, for example, compatibilism is the view that uh determinism and free will are compatible um libertarianism not to be confused with political libertarianism right is the metaphysical view that free will and determinism are incompatible but that we do have some kind of indeterminate free will Mm -hmm. um If you were to define free will as requiring the unconditional ability to do otherwise, that would sort of favor the libertarian and exclude compatibilism. Um, If you were to define free will in terms of reasons, responsiveness, that would sort of beg the question in favor of the compatibilist. Mm -hmm. So by defining free will as the control and action required for more responsibility, it leaves all of these views open. And then it asks, well, what kind of control is needed? Um, To make an agent responsible in this way. I also think it captures the practical importance of the debate, because if we're not debating issues that that connect up with um, with moral responsibility or various uh, practices and attitudes and policies and judgments, it's hard to see what the debate's about. Um, (laughs) Right. And I also think it fits with our everyday understanding. We generally uh, understand free will as intertwined with moral responsibilities. There's a lot of experimental philosophy that seems to indicate that ordinary folk view things this way. Um, and lastly, if you reject this this definition of free will, I, I, it makes it difficult to understand what the substantive dispute is really about, um, because there are various forward-looking practices that even a free will skeptic could adopt. Sure. Um, for pragmatic purposes, for consequentialist reasons, um, without necessarily saying agents deserve, in some basic sense, to be treated in a certain way. So, um, I think it really captures the the kind core aspect of the free will problem.
0: Excellent, excellent. That's that's very good and and, and clarifies a lot. Um, so, again, just picking up on what you just said. So, one of the central theses of the book. Uh, one of those sort of main threads that runs uh, at least through the first part of the book is that the truth of hard incompatibilism defeats retributivism as a theory of punishment, or perhaps it's a theory of what justifies punishment. Right. um, so, um can you tell us uh, a little bit, firstly, about why you think that hard incompatibilism defeat the truth of hard incompatibilism defeats retributivism, uh, and then I would also invite you to just say a little bit about how. And I thought this was a very nice uh, uh, and helpful feature of the book. That you know, basically, you argue. Well, look, if you're a Harding compatibilist, or if Harding compatibilism is true, retributivism is false. But hey, if you're not, if you didn't get sold on the Harding compatibilist arguments, don't worry. I still have independent arguments against retributivism that don't require you to buy my free will uh, skeptical view. So um, can you just sort of um, run us through those those two phases of the anti retributivism arguments?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, Let me just say the general structure of the book, real quick, is is essentially uh two halves with one kind of transitional chapter in the middle so the first half of the book is essentially me trying to lay out um different arguments against retributivism and i sort of developed six distinct arguments and as you said (laughs) um only two of them really depend upon free will the other four um that i present um i argue independent of issues over free will um so the first half of the book is my attempt to reject retributivism um there's a sort of transitional chapter where I talk about um, non-retributive alternatives um, that could also perha- perhaps justify legal punishment. So consequentialist, deterrence-based models, uh, mixed theories, communicative theories. And I reject those for sort of independent reasons, and maybe we could sure. skip that. And right. then the whole second half of the book, is my attempt to uh develop my alternative which I'm sure we'll talk about. So so in the in the first half um I lay out sort of six distinct arguments um for rejecting the view known as as retributivism. Let me just say quickly what that view is um for the listeners. So within the criminal justice system one of the most prominent justifications for for legal punishment both historically and and currently is uh something known as retributivism and as you said in the introduction essentially it's the view um that absent any excusing conditions like mental illness or incompetency um wrongdoers are morally responsible for their actions and sort of deserve to be punished Hmm. in proportion to their wrongdoing um So it maintains that essentially wrongdoers deserve something bad to happen to them just because they've knowingly done wrong. And that can include everything from pain, deprivation. Sadly, we still have the death penalty in the United States all the way up to death, right? Right. Um, But the key, the two kind of key aspects that you have to focus on is that um, essentially retributive punishment is grounded in the notion of sort of just desserts, as you said, um, Mm -hmm. i.e. that individuals justly deserve to be punished um, simply for having done something wrong. Um, but also, um, it's purely backward looking. Right. So the retributivist thinks that um, the punishment is somehow intrinsically morally good. That is, it's good without reference to any, any additional goods or any forward looking benefits. So the, the person would deserve to be punished even if it didn't deter crime, even if it didn't make us safer, even if it didn't help in the moral formation of the wrongdoer. The justification is simply looking backward at the wrongfulness of the act and then saying they should be punished in proportion to that wrongdoing. Right. Um, and if you, if you caught the definition I gave earlier of basic dessert, well, that's exactly what basic dessert moral responsibility says. It's purely backward looking. It's not consequential. Um, so if I'm right, if we lack this kind of moral responsibility, this basic desert kind of more responsibility, then retributive punishment would be unjustified because no one would basically deserve to suffer or be punished um, uh, in this way that's required for retributivism, right? So um, if my views about free will are, are correct, then um, the, basically the, the philosophical justification for retributivism um, uh, falls apart. And as long as we care about our legal practices being justified, then I argue we should reject retributivism as a foundation for these legal practices. Um, but then, as, you, as I say, well, look, what if you're not convinced of my views on free will? Um, oh, and by the way, let me just quickly throw this in. Yes, I'm a hardy compatibilist, but I also offer um, a separate independent argument based on luck in the book. Right. Um, which some people refer to as hard luck. Neil Levy has a book named Hard Luck, which is a great title. Um <laughs> but it's the idea of hard again, like hard incompatibilism, hard determinism, that the pervasiveness of luck itself is incompatible with agents being free and morally responsible in the sense required for retributivism. Right. Um so in any case, I I argue that there's there's sufficient reason for rejecting this notion of moral responsibility, exactly the notion that would be needed for retributivism. But then I offer what I call the epistemic argument. Um, and this argument also relies on free will. So this argument, though, only requires a set of weaker sense of skepticism. Right. So let's say you're not convinced that we lack free will. Okay. Um, you know, you think maybe there's a door open for compatibilism or for libertarianism. Well, the idea of the epistemic argument is to sort of shift the burden of proof.
0: Hmm.
1: And it, it I'll just kind of lay it out really quickly, if I can. It basically sure. says legal punishment intentionally inflicts harm on individuals, right? So when we punish individuals or when the state punishes a wrongdoer, um, they're intentionally inflicting some harm on that wrongdoer, deprivation, um, a removal of liberty, some sort of harsh treatment. And this treatment, obviously, when you look at, the United States and our criminal justice system could be quite harsh. We have a mass incarceration crisis. Our prisons are often, you know, inhospitable, inhumane places. So legal punishment, you know, intentionally inflicts a great deal of harm, potentially, on individuals. Sure. Um, and the argument is that the justification for intentionally harming individuals has to reach a high epistemic Bar that is, you have to have good reason, <laughs> um, uh, and good justification for intentionally harming someone. If it's significantly probable that that your justification for harming someone is um, is is uh, is not justified, then prima facie there's something seriously morally wrong with harming someone. Um, but what's the retributive justification for the, for legal punishment? Well, it assumes that agents are free and morally responsible, in exactly this sense under dispute in the free will controversy. Um, And my argument is that um, if the assumption that individuals are free and morally responsible in this this sense um, doesn't reach this high burden, this high bar that has to be met to justify intentionally harming wrongdoers, then it's, again, prima facie, seriously morally wrong to do so. And well, this is a debate that's been waged for 2,000 years. Uh, There's no clear consensus (laughs) about whether agents have the kind of control and action required for basic deserve more responsibility. Um, And my argument is that, look, even if you're not convinced that we lack free will, there's at least sufficient doubt that libertarian free will exists and that the accounts of libertarian free will could preserve what's needed. And compatibilism, I argue, um, if there's not much debate that we have the capacities that compatibilists point out, what's controversial is whether those capacities are sufficient to ground holding agents morally responsible in this, this basic dessert sense. And since there's sufficient doubt, I argue we should suspend these practices that intentionally harm wrongdoers on the off chance that these, you know, uh extremely controversial notions are enough to justify treating individuals in this way. Um, right. So this requires only a weaker sense of skepticism because it only requires that there's some doubt um that these other notions of free will, libertarian and compatibilist notions, uh succeed. Um and 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 actually the the burden I I, I adopt in the book is the legal burden of uh beyond reasonable doubt. Right. Um and clearly I, I argue we don't reach that level uh, in in this in this metaphysical debate about free will that we're so certain beyond reasonable doubt that we should then justify these practices um, but beyond those two arguments, I then lay out sort of um, additional reasons that are completely independent of free will and say, look even if you don't agree with um, my views on free will and even if you think there's a way around this epistemic argument um. There's all kinds of other additional problems with retributivism. And, and one is, is, uh, is uh, has been nicely recently defended in a book by, excuse me, Aaron Kelly, called The Limits of Blame, um, where I call it the misalignment argument. Um, essentially, it says that um, there's a kind of fundamental misalignment between the legal standards of guilt— which we employ in criminal justice and the um, philosophical standards of blameworthiness that even people who believe agents are free and morally responsible believe certain conditions have to be satisfied and that there are all kinds of various ways that um, an agent um, could have diminished responsibility or mitigated responsibility. And so there's this fundamental misalignment between the legal standards of guilt and the uh, and the criteria for blameworthiness. So things like adverse backgrounds, mental capacities. Um, oh, this is when me taking off my free will skeptic hat. Right. Um, and so, like, if even if you're a compatibilist, or even if you're a libertarian, you acknowledge that there are various. Um, features of agents that could diminish their responsibility. So think of mental capacities. You know, we talk about agents who lack uh, reasons, abilities, or agents who um, are suffering from Alzheimer's or agents that um, are suffering from some form of psychopathy or, um, or delusional um, uh, states. And these could diminish one's responsibility in various ways. Well, the law is very coarse grained. The law basically allows for an insanity defense, right. um, and that's about it in terms of mental capacities. And legal standards for insanity are very hard to meet, um, and are very seldom. And you know, insanity defense is very seldom work. Um, and yet, so someone can be found legally guilty under the legal criteria of guilt and yet still not satisfy the philosophical conditions for moral responsibility. And so there's this fundamental misalignment then between the two. And even for retributivists, that would mean some deserved offenders uh, go unpunished and some undeserved offenders end up being punished. And and so I would argue that um, there is a large class of of things that – seldom get discussed, but things like adverse backgrounds, mental capacities, poverty, racism, mental illness, short of insanity um, that could affect um, one's blameworthiness, if you think that kind of responsibility could still be preserved, um, and and, and could diminish one's responsibility even when um, the legal criteria could be satisfied. And that's a problem. It's a problem for retributivists, especially since... um, they They think only deserved offenders should be punished, so in practice it's very hard to implement and then i I sort of build on that and argue, well, look, you could say that that's a reason to to um uh improve our our criminal justice system to try to get those two things better aligned to reform things to add additional defenses to the law. but then I introduce in a more imprincipled argument, I call the poor epistemic position argument or PEPA, as I like to call it. Um, And it it basically, it says, you know, look, to to track the desert of individuals, the state would have to monitor and track everything they do, or a large class of of actions. Um, And A, that's sort of practically impossible. And B, it would lead to sort of a totalitarian state. No one would want to be in a state where the state was, you know, essentially tracking uh, and monitoring individuals so as to properly align punishment yep. in accordance with desert. Um, and so the state's in a, in a poor epistemic position to, to judge the desert of offenders, and that's because there are cognitive biases, there's a limit on time and resources the state has to look into the backgrounds of individuals to essentially judge the kind of large class of what I would consider mitigating factors that could reduce responsibility. And there's just too many factors to consider poverty adolescent development uh racism injustice that could uh, diminish um the responsibility of agents and so since the state's in a poor epistemic position um, that it's probably best that we adopt um some approach that doesn't try to distribute punishment in accordance with dessert because it's it's virtually impossible for the state to properly um to to distribute punishment in accordance with dessert, Um, in part because they're in this poor epistemic position. And then one last one, and then I'll leave out the last, last argument. Um, And this, I think, is a real fundamental problem. Um, I argue that there's an indeterminacy in judgment. I call this the indeterminacy in judgment argument. So think of what the retributivists would have to do to properly uh, judge what kind of punishment would be just. You imagine two columns, like in a ledger. And in the uh, one column you have a rank ordering of 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 the gravity of wrongs. So I guess genocide, intentional murder, those would be pretty high on the list, all the way down to like petty crime, right? So you got a, right. a rank ordering of, of 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 uh you know gravity of wrongs, and then you're supposed to look across the ledger once you have the right the right ordering and figure out what the proportional punishment would be. Yeah. In the book, I go into great detail about this: that both columns, the gravity of wrong judgments and the proportionality judgments, are sub are indeterminate, and mm. they're subject to cultural biases, prejudice, power relations, and, and 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 they're so indeterminate and elastic. I argue that, in a certain sense, retributivism doesn't provide any of the protections. Against disproportionate punishment that proponents argue it does, so I argue the the uh, purported protections one thinks you get with retributive punishment, um, are actually more apparent than real. And so, for example, I, I use you know historical examples and 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 current examples. One example is just homosexuality. In the past, it was considered a grievous wrong, right, and it was considered punishable by death. Um, and it was still outlawed in in the UK right for um uh, for many many years if anyone knows the story of alan alan turing um right. and uh how his homosexuality was uh, 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 persecuted by the state um so it was most people today wouldn't consider it a wrong at all let alone proportionally punish, punishable punishable by, by by death or or some other shorter punishment and then here's another one even if um, you get two retributivists to agree that, say, intentional murder, well, that's pretty, that's pretty bad. That's pretty high on the, the ranking of, uh, of gravity, of wrongs, probably right up there at the top. Right. So there's, let's say that we could agree on that. Well, what's the proportional punishment? Kant thought death. Kant right. was a retributivist. He thought the only suitable punishment for murder was death. Well, most right. contemporary retributivists—well, not uh, but I would say a good a good deal of them would reject the death penalty. Right. So they 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 agree that that where it ranks in terms of its badness, but disagree on its proportional punishment. Um. Some say maybe life life in prison. Well, others might think life in prison is too, uh, disproportionate a punishment for that. That we should allow for the possibility of uh, rehabilitation. Um, And so, so even if you could agree on gravity, there's still so much subjective and indeterminate flux in terms of proportionality that essentially any cultural biases, any prejudice, any, um, uh, you know, um, social injustices could be wrapped up into that ju- into those judgments to justify extremely harsh punishment. So the, other, the I'll just mention one last one is the, you know, sentencing disparity between powder cocaine and crack cocaine.
0: Yeah, right. Um, well.
1: Right. And so there actually was historically something called the 100 to 1 ratio where um, you would have to have 100 uh, grams of powder cocaine equal the punishment that one gets for one gram of crack cocaine wow. yeah, yeah um so one one gram of crack cocaine got you five years in jail to get the equivalent for powder you needed 100 grams so it's called 100 to one there's no scientific or philosophical justification for that right. Uh, right in terms of the pharmaceutical properties they're equally bad for you there's no real justification the only real um explanation you could come up with is racism and and yeah. and so the the what we considered proportional punishment for those differences in what we considered two different you know acts with two different you know in terms of the gravity of their wrong two different you know judgments um, is only grounded in who used powder cocaine and who used scrap cocaine. Right. Um, and so none of that could really be justified. And even the retributivists would acknowledge that, but my argument is that they can't ex- they can't cleanse their their view of those kind of subjective judgments. And so in the end, um ultimately extremely harsh punishments could still be justified under the retributivist account, given that indeterminacy. And then there are additional arguments, but I don't
0: want to yeah. get into all of them. Yeah. So, can I ask a, a sort of a philosophical question? Because that that series of arguments about the ledger, <laughs> about the two sides yeah. of the ledger, got me thinking of a different kind of conceptual um, uh, objection to retributivism. Because um, even if the retributivist says to the kinds of arguments that you've just said, well, you know, we can we can refine our practices. We can you know try to purge the the uh, the subjectivist um elements of you know how we draw up the ledger the ledger, these are epistemic problems. it would still seem to me though that um, uh gradable punishments mm-hmm. um, on, a rank, on a sort of scale of severity are are, are always going to max out somewhere yeah. right so just like you know I can only you know, the death penalty can be administered to a particular person only once. So if you say, well, if you kill 20 people, you get the death penalty. Yeah, yeah. And then somebody kills 25.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) It just seems to me conceptually you're required then, right, to just say that, well, five people's lives didn't matter. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. And that just strikes me as, you know, a sort of just a conceptual problem uh, with retributivism if every version of it, and I think you're right that every version of, of it will have to be committed to some such... You know, sort of two columns, you know, yeah. how severe is the crime? What's the proportional punishment? Well, at some point there's no more punishment to give. Yeah. But you can still do things that are worse. You right? know what's funny?
1: What's funny about that is that there actually have been cases where judges have handed down uh five life sentences to be served right. consecutively. Right. Or I think even Bernie Madoff or one of these really famous cases, the sentence was 125 years. Yeah. Uh, now these are obviously practically impossible uh, punishments, right? No one lives five lives, and you know no one lives for 125 yeah. years. But I think you're you're getting to something which is like, look, they want to be able to acknowledge that this is wronger than the one right right beneath it, yeah, on the ledger, and somehow that means we have to come up with these unreasonable and kind of comical. Um, right. excessive punishments to, to kind of keep that grading on the fairness of the retributivists, I would say, you know, there have been attempts to answer these questions. There are what are called cardinal uh, accounts of proportionality or ordinal accounts of yeah, proportionality. Yeah. Um, but in the book and, and, and elsewhere, I've tried to argue that each of those attempts at, resol- at resolving the problem run into their own individual side of problems. So
0: good, good, yeah. good, good. So, you know, um, I take it that a lot of the, you know, it's it's oh, let me, is this, oh, okay, sure. if
1: I could just jump in with yeah, one last yeah. one last thought. Um, I don't really raise this one in the book, but you had me thinking about it um, and I thought maybe you were going to go there. Um, you know, it's interesting that, you know, we have this view or some people have this view that, you know, um, the proper role of the state is to distribute punishment in accordance with dessert. So we call that sort of negative dessert, right? The kind of dessert right. that people get for doing bad things. But no, almost no one thinks it would be the proper function of the state to distribute dessert for good deeds. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, and so it's kind of an interesting uh, question as to whether the state should at all be in the business of trying to distribute either goods or you know benefits or punishments in accordance with dessert. Given that dessert is such a kind of nefarious thing to judge and is sub you know subject to. Um, all kinds of epistemic limitations, as I said, and also, you know, biases and prejudices. Um, you know, one thing to just think about with my epi- with my PEPA argument, the poor epistemic position argument is the sheer, sheer quantity of people that come through the criminal justice system. Right. Um, it's really sad, but 90 percent Well, actually, 97 percent of federal cases and 94 percent of state cases are settled through plea bargaining. Yeah. Um, none of them are getting their so-called just desserts because no one is getting their day in court where their acts are judged, and then the punishment is distributed in accordance um and part of the problem is just that the state can't afford the resources and time that would be needed to truly determine with each each individual case um what the what the punishment would be in terms of just assessing dessert
0: right. Right, yeah. so good. Um, So I take it that you know, sort of, just philosophically, you know, when you make a um, uh, a popular and seemingly intuitive view look bad, um, you know, the proponents of that kind of view just ask you for the alternative, and yeah. then it's just a comparative uh, uh, philosophical argument. If there's nothing better than terrible retributivism, then retributivism wins yeah. any debate, right? So um, the second half of the book, as you'd put it. Um, is devoted to developing your positive account. Um, And so you devote four chapters uh, to developing this alternative approach to um, managing or dealing with uh, criminal behavior that you call the public health quarantine model. Mm -hmm. Um, So... Uh, c- can you give us the big picture of, of, yeah. of how that model, uh, that alternative model works?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the main contributions of the book. And so it, it starts with work previously done by Dirk Piraboom, so I should give him credit. Um, but there's sort of this quarantine analogy part, and then there's this public health part. So let me kind of quickly run through both the quarantine part. Um, is pretty straightforward. So the idea is like, look, if free will skeptics are, are right, then no one is deserving of, of punishment. Um, no wrongdoer, no criminal is truly deserving of punishment because essentially no one has the kind of free will or moral responsibility needed to justify purely backward-looking practices and judgments. Um that said though like look, I get on a plane and I come to meet you Rob in in, New, in uh, Nashville in person let's say and on mm-hmm. the on my journey I, I contract Ebola and I test positive at the airport um well, I think we'd all agree that the state would be justifying quarantining me quarantining sure. that individual with a communicable disease and the justification for quarantine would be grounded in this idea of protecting public health and so i in the book i developed this in terms of the of a right of self defense and prevention of harm to others so the idea is that the state would have the uh, standing the the justification for limiting the liberty of this individual um, without appealing to free will without appealing to more responsibility or just deserts or retributivism, um, all they need to do is, is uh, to justify the limiting of that liberty is to appeal to the right of self-defense and prevention of harm to others. And so the an argument is essentially that we could um, give an analogous justification for the incapacitation of seriously dangerous criminals. So the idea would be um, we could justify incapacitating uh, serial killers, child molesters um, on the grounds that um, that the state is justified in limiting their liberty on the right of self-defense and prevention of harm to others, analogous to the justification we give for quarantine. And again, we could justify limiting that individual's liberty without appealing to the idea that they deserve it or that they're morally responsible or had free will or need to be given their just desserts. Um, but here's an interesting Thing I, I try to uh, defend in the book is that not only do I think of this view as non-retributive, I also think of it as non-punitive. Right, um, And that we don't generally think that when we quarantine the Ebola patient that we're punishing them. Punishment usually requires more than just a mere restriction on liberty. Punishment usually involves, or at least legal punishment uh, typically involves uh, the intentional imposition of harm. It also tends to include a condemnatory or communicative component, where the state communicates disapproval both of the agent and what they did. None of that is really present here, um, and so no intuitive sense are we quarant- are punishing the the person who has COVID, right, when they when we quarantine them. And so that would require a whole deal of reform in the criminal justice system if we implemented this, this kind of quarantine model. Um, and so, first, it would mean that, you know, less dangerous as you know, less dangerous diseases justify only preventative measures less restrictive than quarantine. Um, less dangerous criminal tendencies would justify only more moderate restraints, meaning we don't quarantine people for the common cold we accept a certain amount of risk within society we you know if i sneeze on you and you get sick i've caused you some harm but we don't generally think the common cold is something to quarantine people for so what right. we would need to do is assess the things that we currently criminalize the things we currently incarcerate people for and the length for which we incarcerate them and see whether or not um, it would be justified on my model. And part of what I argue is that many of the things that we currently incarcerate people for would be better served with less restrictive measures. So I adopt something I call the principle of, of uh, least infringement, which essentially holds that the least restrictive measures should be taken to protect public health and safety. So if you could do something short of quarantine, then, you should, then you're required uh, to, if, if, if that measure would protect public health. And the same thing here in the criminal context, that the vast majority of people who are currently incarcerated in the United States are suffering from mental illnesses. Many of them would be better served with mental health uh, services. Um, Many, many people in the United States are incarcerated either for drug possession or underlying addiction problems that led to petty crime. Many of them would be better uh, dealt with in in a less restrictive manner by drug treatment. Um, and so, my model is also consistent with the decriminalization of many of the things we currently incarcerate people for, and so i've I actually called for uh in a recent paper an end on the war on drugs and to uh uh decriminalize you know personal possession of marijuana and other recreational drugs and The argument is that those kinds of actions don't don't reach the level of risk. To society and potential harm to others, to to warrant incapacitation, I, I claim. Um, but the other big difference is that those people that we do incapacitate, um, you're not punishing them, right? You're you're simply limiting their liberty uh, to prevent, you know, to protect public health and safety. So in this case, um, the institutions would have to be designed for non-punitive purposes. Our prisons are. Primarily designed for punitive purposes, right? And the minute individuals get there, they're stripped naked, they're dehumanized, they're isolated. Um, every aspect of their day is controlled: uh, when they wake up, when they go to sleep, when they eat. Uh, and it actually kind of instills a, a, a learned helplessness. And it, because of the the fact that our prisons are largely um, cold and you know inhumane places our recidivism rate is, is outrageous. We have one of the highest recidivism rates in the world. Um, uh, 76.6% of prisoners will be rearrested within the first five years of release. Um, so we're not, you know, it's not effective. And so what I would argue is that our institutions then would have to be reoriented toward rehabilitation and reintegration. Um, and so like, again, go back to the quarantine case. Well, you got me at the airport, you quarantine me because I have Ebola. Um, well, you know, you still have a moral duty to treat me and then release me the minute I'm no longer contagious. You right. no longer have justification for continuing to hold me um, after I'm no longer a threat. And so I would argue the same bar should, should be, a, the same sort of standard should be applied in the criminal context in that the the role of the system should be to rehabilitate and reintegrate individuals as quickly as possible, and that we should adopt the least restrictive measures necessary to protect public safety and so um, you know i I actually give statistics in the book for thinking that this would drastically reduce our mass incarceration crisis right. um there's actually a study i think it's by the ran uh uh Institute that found that nearly um uh half a million people their their study in, uh found are currently incarcerated um with uh, th- that pose no threat to public safety that is if you released this half a million people um their argument is that these that there'd be no increase in risk to public safety um And these are largely people who are aging out in prison, people who committed low-level crimes. And so just alone, if that statistic is even close to accurate, my model would immediately require the release of half a million people. Right. Right. Um, Now, let me flip over to the public health part. So, you know, as a free will skeptic, people say, well, you know, you owe us an account of what you do for serial killers and child molesters. And so I just sort of gave you that account. We could justify incapacitating them um, in humane conditions um, on the grounds of the right of self-defense. But I want to shift our myopic obsession with punishment um, and, and and reorient the attention to prevention. I want to move us away from a reactive approach to crime to a preventative approach. And this is where the public health part comes in. Um, public, And this is weird. When I developed this, this model, um, <clears throat> No one really had familiarity with with quarantine or with public health, um, and now almost virtually everyone around the planet does because right. of this <laughs> pandemic. Um, and I don't I don't know if that familiarity strengthens or weakens my case, but um, we have a lot of familiarity now with the idea of tracking disease with um, adopting preventative measures like wearing masks, right? Um, small measures that individuals can do that can help spread, you know, prevent the spread of disease. But public health, um, institutions have been dealing with, um, tracking disease and adopting, um, interventions to prevent outbreaks, um, for, for a long time. And one of the main things that the public health framework brings is a lens that shifts the focus again from a reactive approach, only addressing things after the, the problems arise to, um, both prevention and social justice. So I'll say a little bit about each of those real quick. Okay. The pre- the prevention part um, is um, essentially you have to identify what are the drivers of violent behavior? What are the drivers of crime? And in the book, I, I I label this the social determinants of criminal behavior. And I look at a large wealth of empirical literature, hundreds or thousands of studies um, and I try to make the case that the social determinants of criminal behavior are essentially identical to the social determinants of poor health. Right, um, And they include things like poverty and low socioeconomic status, abuse and domestic violence, how, uh, lack of stable housing, mental illness, lack of access to persistent and stable health care and education, environmental health, nutrition. Everyone who even has an inkling about the literature on health can see that that these things are really important when it comes to public health. So we know um, poverty affects morbidity. People in poverty have lower life expectancies, higher rates of type 2 diabetes, higher rates of uh, disease, uh, medical problems. Um, That also is driven by lack of access to health care and housing. We also know that, you know, people who are abused, um, people who've been victims of domestic violence, suffer mental health uh, issues that arise out of that that experience. Um, And so if we want to address the poor health outcomes, you know, one of the things the public health framework does is it identifies these social determinants, prioritizes them, and then you adopt basically best practices for for trying to address them. this is where the social justice part comes in. Think of like infant mortality rates in developing countries. Take India, for example, where infant mortality rates are pretty, pretty high, right? Children don't survive childbirth or adolescence um, at higher rates than let's say in the West. Um, And then you try to say, okay, that's a poor health outcome. How do we correct that, that, that problem? And one of the things you realize very quickly is that the, um, Health problems are driven by underlying social inequalities. Um, in this particular case, it might be um, women's rights issues. In many, in many instances, um, uh, the low infant mortality is driven by um, lack of uh, reproductive control over their bodies. Women lack this kind of you know, control over how often they procreate, lack of access to birth control, higher rates of illiteracy and so dependence on their husbands and their families. If you address the underlying social inequalities, the social injustice, you correct the health outcomes. And so what I, what I argue in the book is that if we want to successfully address criminal justice reform, we can't do so without addressing issues of social justice because many of the underlying causes of criminal behavior and violence are... Um, the outgrowth of the social determinants of criminal behavior, which are driven in, you know, are grounded in things like poverty and low socioeconomic status, and racism, and, and uh, um, domestic violence, and housing, and so so to properly track crime, violent behavior we could adopt sort of um epidemiological models like we do for disease where we could actually see how diseases break out how the Ebola virus spreads and how it breaks out and they map it in these public health institutions um the same is true now with with um crime we could actually see how crime could spread throughout a community hmm. and how crime and violence is often a byproduct of circumstances more than people and so if you want to um alleviate the crimes from occurring in the first place then the best way to do it is to address these underlying uh systemic causes of of criminality. Um but yeah, maybe I'll stop there cuz I'm going on to.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um so we we we're, we are running out of time Greg, but I just yeah. wanted to ask sort of one um one additional question mainly about one of the several objections to um uh the positive a view that you, you defend in the book. Sure. Um, so, you know, I can imagine somebody even just having listened to, um, what you were just saying, I can imagine somebody saying that the public health quarantine model and indeed the whole approach, uh, that, that you're advocating, um, seems to entail that, um, being a threat or being uh, being a threat to, um, uh, you know, being a threat to others, not actually th- threatening them or not actually committing, uh, uh, harmful acts, but being a threat or being at risk for enacting criminal behavior looks like it would suffice for some kind of treatment by the state, maybe not full on quarantine, but some kind of state intervention, even though you haven't done anything harmful mm-hmm. you are well placed to do it mm-hmm. um some might think that that's um, a, a pretty serious objection. what do you say to that
1: yeah so I try to head off this kind of concern in the in the book I mean uh, after laying out the theory um, over a few chapters I have the I think it's the last two chapters or my attempt to address various objections <laughs> to the theory yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and one of them is sort of this concern um there's a couple of ways. I mean, there's several aspects, I think, uh, of my theory that could try to prevent this. I mean, the first thing I would argue is that for me, at least the right of Liberty has to carry significant weight. Um, and so I always want to place the burden on anyone who wants to limit Liberty. So in this case, the, the burden of proof has to be on the state, right? Cause they're trying to limit the Liberty of an individual. Um, uh, and so they carry, they carry the epistemic burden, um, that said i think there's enough of a disanalogy dis, dis between the quarantine case in the, in the terms of uh communicable disease and um and how the incapacitation account would work in the uh criminal uh justice arena so although the the underlying justification is analogous i don't want to give the impression that this is a sort of a disease based model where criminals are viewed as purely diseased or that um or that the analogy carries through completely. I mean, what's, what's analogous for me is this, that the fact is the justification is analogous. That is, it's grounded in the right of self-defense. I see. Uh, so the idea would be something like this. Like, look, given the limitations of our current screening methods for, for criminality, um, we're nowhere near, right, <laughs> having any any predictive uh, tools that allow us to know with certainty, Um, It's not the minority report. Right. We don't have the ability at the current moment. And I don't foresee the ability really um, in the near future to know with certainty uh, whether someone will commit a crime. And given the invasiveness of what would be required in the criminal context, which actually would in this case would require probably imprisoning you um, Hmm. to observe your behavior. Right. So given the invasive, it isn't like I could give you a covid test. Right right? I have to basically monitor you already limiting your liberty. So given the invasiveness um, and the limited uh, ability to screen for, for criminal tendencies and, and also the likelihood of false positives, um, I would argue that we should adopt a sort of epistemic skepticism um, mm-hmm. when it comes to judging the dangerousness of individuals. So just like the presumption of innocence works in the courtroom now to protect individuals, where the burden has to be that the state has to prove beyond reasonable doubt that the individual committed the crime. I would say the the analogous uh, principle here would be something called the presumption of harmlessness, Hmm. where the state should presume the individual is harmless and then have to overcome that burden. Now, that might be easy to do when someone commits a crime because prior behavior is probably the best judge for future behavior. So if someone committed uh, an intentional murder or someone has already molested you know, children, then I think the presumption of harmlessness could be overcome and we could incapacitate the individual on the grounds that it's necessary to protect further victims. Hmm. Um, but with innocent people, and I should specify because I think this objection could come in different forms and people who have criticized my theory sometimes run it in different ways there's two types of innocence. Um, there's the, let's call them the purely innocent person, the person who hasn't committed any crimes and has no criminal tendencies and poses no threat at all. Well, that'd be pretty clear that my model couldn't justify incapacitating that person because, um, my model is based on the right of self-defense and that could only, that right could only be triggered when the individual is, posing some actual threat, right? An innocent person who hasn't committed any crime and poses no threat would never trigger that right uh, of self-defense where the state could limit that individual's liberty. But what about someone who's innocent in a different sense? They haven't yet committed a crime, but they pose a high high potential for committing a crime. Um, What I would do here is make use of certain things that are already done in the law. So, for example, Take the involuntary hospitalization of the mentally ill. Um, We already allow for some exceptions where we incapacitate people who haven't yet committed crimes. And that might be like a case where someone goes to a therapist and um, says that they're having thoughts about killing the person they're stalking or um, killing their ex-girlfriend. Um, we already know from cases like the Tarsakoff case, which is a famous case where um, a student actually did go to their counselor, said they were going to harm the student. The counselor didn't do anything. The student killed the the girl. It was not actually a girlfriend. It was someone he had pursued and and um, had his advances rejected. Um, since then, counselors and 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 uh, medical mental health experts are required, right, to to um, to report that threat. And let's say that that threat is thought to be serious and you know, et cetera. Um, I would say in certain cases like that, these are really hard cases. These are really difficult ethical cases. Um, and uh, there's no easy answers on what the, the right thing to do in all of them actually is, but we already allow for some incapacitation in those cases. And I would say that would probably continue. Um, right. But what about a reasons responsive agent? An agent that is responsive to reasons, um, that you know meets all the compatibilist conditions that they specify for free will. What I would argue is that those conditions matter, but not in the way the compatibilist thinks. That is, they matter, on my account, in a different way. They don't matter for judging blameworthiness or free will, because um, I don't think those conditions actually get us free will, but I do think that they matter in that because of the, the the right to liberty and the, the high burden on restricting liberty, I think that you have to give reasons-responsive agents the ability to commit a crime first. Hmm. Um, the state – we might have reasons to reason with them, give them um, – Good reasons not to commit those acts. We could admonish them. Them. We could try to weigh their rational deliberation. But given that they're competent agents, I think that the idea is that you have to allow for those interventions, those rational interventions, those argumentative uh, approaches um, to work or not work. And um, given the presumption of harmlessness and the the high burden the state would have, I would think that in almost all normal cases. On my model, you couldn't justify incapacitating that person until they committed a crime. I do acknowledge that there would be special cases like um, severe mental illness, cases where people pose a threat and, and aren't reasons responsive. But I say that the state already does that. And yeah. although that area is messy and there are complications, I think that those, those that that is already part of our process. Um so, yeah, I think I could avoid – I could. I, I would say in almost all real-life cases, um, we would not be justified in incapacitating an innocent person.
0: Got it. Yeah. Greg, you know, there's a lot left to talk about yeah. uh, in the book. So we haven't covered uh, all of the really interesting, fascinating uh, um, uh, features uh, of the book. And just to tell the audience um, – one of the real virtues of the book is, you know, there are multiple arguments on every page. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I want to congratulate you again uh, uh, on the book, and 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 thank you for talking to me uh, for new books in philosophy.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Great. Um, uh, so thank you, listeners, uh, for joining us. Um, I'll remind you, uh, I've just been talking to Greg Caruso. Um, he has a new book out with Cambridge University Press. It is titled rejecting retributivism, free will, punishment, and criminal behavior. Thanks for listening to New Books in Philosophy, and bye for now.